Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Swinney, along with my co-host, Bonnie Quinn. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and on Bloomberg.com. I'm looking at Bitcoin here, looking at the chart here. We haven't talked Bitcoin in a while. I'm looking at the chart, and it hit a low for this year, back around mid-March, just under $5,000. Look at it today. It is more than doubled to over $11,000. So Bitcoin just really just rallying here once again. And that kind of in line with gold. We talk a lot about gold, um, but uh, Bitcoin has just been an extraordinary story. I'm going to talk about both gold and Bitcoin. We can do that, of course, with one Michael McGlone, Bloomberg Intelligence uh, commodity strategist. So, Mike, let's start with Bitcoin because Anything I know about this commodity, and I admit it's limited, but whatever I do know, it's from reading your research. What's been going on with Bitcoin here? Hey, Paul. Well, the key thing was 10,000 resistance. It held for quite a while, basically almost a year, and the market finally blew through that um, last weekend. And I think the key thing was it's following gold, and also there was a notice from the OCC, the Officer of the Controller of the Currency, that they're going to allow banks to custody Bitcoin. So Bitcoin's finally reached that hurdle. And Bitcoin has a tendency to stagnate and, and just drive people crazy for a while and then jump for big moves. So the next target I really see for Bitcoin, right now it's around 11000 I see it really is around 14000 which was last year's high. Interesting. All right. So how do you view – I know you were the first one to introduce me to this concept as Bitcoin uh, similar to gold in a store of value How's your thinking on that these days? Yeah, bottom line is the simple way to look at Bitcoin is the supply is declining by code. It's going to be less than 2% next year and, be, and go to near 1% in the next 100 years. And that's a big difference with gold. Gold has historically been around 2%, but prices go higher, more supply come on. Bitcoin won't do that. So the key thing matters is demand and adoption. Yes, it's a new technology, but all my indicators are for more adoption and more demand. And this little news last week from the OCC really kind of picks it up. So that's the bottom line. Remember, it's digital currency and there's more demand for it and limited supply and people are adopting it. Talk to me about that supply issue again. Just explain that a little bit more to me and our listeners, why there would not be more supply. Why can't I just go get a computer and and create some more supply? Well, that's the thing. Um, the total amount of Bitcoins ever mined will be 21 million. We're almost 19 million mined already. So Now, why, why, mine, why is that? Where did that 21 million number come from? It was, it was set up by code by our famous person, Satoshi Nakamoto. I think you might <laughs> like that name, but um, you might um, respond to that one a little bit. But that was set up by code to have limited supply, meaning so it would be more of a store of value. To me, I view it as a collectible. And that's why it's becoming so. That's never going to go much above there, and it doesn't matter who mines or how many people mine. There's no more than 900 Bitcoins created a day. Last year, it was 1,800, and that's it. That's all that can be created. So via code, unless something breaks down with something I can't predict, it's going that way. And again, it's digital money. It's new. It's a new internet money, as people might call it, but supply is limited and demand's picking up. Interesting. All right, let's go back to... Uh, kind of older store of money, and that is gold. We briefly saw it touch $2,000 an ounce here. What are the drivers behind the move in gold, Mike? Uh, I think we all kind of know the big picture ones. The bottom line is free money. It was the cover of Economist magazine just a week ago, and that is a concept that we can print as much money as we want, create as much liquidity as we want by central banks, and have as much fiscal stimulus as we want, yet not have higher bond yields. And that, to me, is just a double 
bull market for, you know, big, big foundation for gold to go higher. When you don't have competition from higher yields, gold must appreciate. And that's what it's doing. Right now, it's getting a little expensive around 2000 I look at it a little more technically now. 21% above the 50-week average is the most in the decade. So you want to lay low a little bit. But fundamentally, it's quite bullish. And until we see something to limit people's ability to print money, which by human nature, the politicians will continue to do, gold should continue to appreciate. And, you know, I'm just looking at the uh, chart of silver. There, there's another commodity that from that same mid-March period uh, has effectively doubled. It is now the best performing commodity on the planet this year, up about 40%. The thing is, it's only really catching up to gold. Okay. It's up around $25, which is really good resistance. So the key thing to remember about silver, well, outperform gold in a weak dollar environment, which we're getting a little bit right now, but you need a strong economy. 50% of demand for silver is from industrial purposes. And right now, that's probably not likely. So um, I view uh, silver as pretty much locked up near good resistance. Probably not going to get you much above 30, but gold can easily get to 3,000. Briefly, in the next 30 seconds or so, Mike, what's the other commodity that maybe we're not focusing on and that we should be? All precious metals, palladium okay. and platinum. To me, it's all precious metals. They're the top performers on the year, and I expect them to continue. Anything uh, less, like on the agricultural front or, I mean, my favorite, you know my favorite, pork bellies. Um, anything <laughs> on the ag front? I'm just going to be doing my outlook, and the problem with ag is just too much supply. The weather's good, too much corn. And there's just not enough demand for it, most notably from slack demand for ethanol. Well, we need China to come in and buy, right? Is that, does that move the market still? They're helping keep it a floor into the market, but the bottom line is there's just so much corn on the market, so much corn coming, weather's good, that'll yep. keep a limit on prices. Appreciate it so much. Mike McGlone, we really appreciate that commodity update. Mike's a commodity strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence, again, giving us his thoughts on the just the commodities have just had a great, great run here. Again, you look up, pull up the chart for silver, for gold, and as Mike was saying, precious metals in general. And you just see, uh, you know, this doubling off the March low and, and then some. And then that, that includes Bitcoin. Again, more of a double uh, in price off of the March lows. So, again, with these low uh, interest rate environments, weaker dollar, starting to see the commodities uh, really uh, trade well. Although not so much on the agricultural front, as Mike was just saying, just the supply and the demand story uh, just not there for uh, commodity ag prices right here, even if with uh, China coming back into the market. Well, as more and more businesses try to reopen, it raises the question, if employees get sick with COVID-19 when they return to work, are employers liable? To try to get the answer to that question, we welcome Rania Sedholm, managing partner of the Sedholm Law Group. Rania, thanks so much for joining us here how does this play out? Are the employers loyal, uh, liable? What's the law currently? Uh, thank you for having me. Uh, you know, I'm going to give you the answer that lawyers love to say, and that is, it depends. Depends, okay. So, yes, it depends. And it, it depends upon what measures the employer is taking in order to maintain a safe uh, working environment. And as you know, it depends on which state you're in. Governors are providing uh, employers with what they perceive as best practices. So let's take in New York, for example. One thing that Governor Cuomo uh, tells us to do is take everybody's temperature every day, record it. If someone has a fever of 102 degrees or Fahrenheit or higher, send them home, make them take the COVID-19 test, have them self-quarantine if they test positive, 
they test negative, they can come back to work. And then uh, you're supposed to ask a series of questions related to travel and interacting with individuals in general who may have exposure to the virus. It also includes making workplaces sanitary and maintaining social distance while working. And all of that is fine. The employer can only do so much. If I provide my employees with a questionnaire and they answer truthfully, that's fine. But I don't know if they're going to answer truthfully because I don't know what they're doing when they go home. I don't know what they're doing over the weekend. And I think it's there uh, where the employer will not be liable due to someone else's fib. Yeah, so it seems to me almost impossible for an employer to be held liable assuming they do the basic requirements because you just don't know. You can't prove where uh, I would think a person got the virus. That is exactly correct. And some people that I know personally have told me that they did test positive for the virus and they were effectively uh, home most of this entire time since March, uh, mid-March, at least in New York City. They're all in New York City. And they stayed home and somehow they... Um, did catch the virus. So you're right, it is impossible. And we're all still waiting for this, you know, I guess it's the fourth stimulus now for uh, COVID-19 from the government. But part of what everyone is discussing is a waiver of liability for employers, because there's there's a tug of war right now between coming back to work and refusing to come back to work. And some employers, uh, it's really impossible for them to function with a 100% workforce working remotely. So do you think that that virus relief uh, proposal where there is some liability protection for businesses and schools, is that is that a reasonable thing to have in federal legislation or can the courts kind of take care of it on its own? Uh, you know, it's, uh, it's to me it's six of one, half dozen doesn't have another. A law is only as good as the individuals who follow it. So again, I think asking questions seems reasonable on the surface, but everybody knows their employees and they know who is going to give them a straight answer and who is not, and it's impossible to police it. I think as long as the employer is taking some kind of reasonable measure in terms of social distancing, cleanliness, things of that nature, then the employer should not be held liable. But if you walk into your office and there are 100 people in an open architecture environment with no, not even cubicles and no division and yep. no space, that, that's, a, that's a completely different issue. Do we have any precedent from a legal perspective about you know, employer liability for just having, a, I guess, a, a clean workplace or one that's, that, that's conducive to health or one that certainly doesn't, is not conducive to spreading disease, generally speaking? I'm not an expert in this area, but we do have OSHA laws, Occupational Safety and Health, and there is both federal and state legislation. It normally is looked at uh, from the perspective of manual labor, making sure individuals, for example, who are on a construction site have proper attire. So if, God forbid, something falls on their foot, they have steel toe shoes and they won't lose a toe. But that those OSHA laws do extend in general to health and safety. And so those laws have not changed. They're still in place. If anything, the CDC and the EEOC have joined on the OSHA bandwagon, and now we have specific COVID-19 guidelines. Do business, I wonder, you know, it's just the liability, the uncertainty of the liability, I wonder if that will, you know, maybe prod certain employers to say, you know what, you can work from home. You know, I mean, have you heard any of that, that, that type of 
concern coming from employers. And until there is a vaccine, I'm not sure I want the liability of people coming back into my office. Yes, I, I have several clients and we've had that exact conversation. And, you know, the advice there is really simple. You, as the business owner, need to do what you think is best for your business and your employees. And the employees also should play a role in, in that decision. So, And it also depends upon what it is you're doing and, again, how people are seated. So I'm the managing member of my law firm, but every one of my attorneys has their own office. Nobody shares offices because I know that I get distracted easily and therefore I like to give everyone their own personal space. So for us, it's, there's less danger, right, of coming to the office. But depending on how your office is designed, it may be perfectly reasonable for you to tell people to continue to work from home. But as you can imagine, there are some jobs which makes it almost impossible for people. Yeah, it's interesting. We had, we had Google, I guess, just announced today that, you know, or yesterday, uh, their folks can stay home till the end of the calendar year. So um, really That's making right. some. Yeah, so that a lot of those opening open space uh, architecture. Um, but how about the folks that are you don't have a choice? You work in a poultry plant or you work in a meat factory. We've already seen issues there. Do those folks have rights? I mean, they they do have rights to the extent that they have a valid reason to not come to the office because maybe they have an underlying health condition, which makes it uh, more unsafe for them than the average individual. They have rights. Yep. Uh, they they also, if they have other uh, issues, for example, perhaps they live with someone with a co- compromised immune system, they have rights there too. There are emergency, you know, sick time relief for those individuals, but there's a cap on how much they'll earn, and it may not be enough for some people to live off of because in some instances, I think the federal cap is two hundred dollars per day. So if you're right. an executive and you are earning one hundred and fifty thousand a year, that's a pretty steep pay cut for you. It it may not be sustainable, but for the individual working, yes, inside some kind of plant, perhaps that is enough for them. Interesting. I I think we can have shifts, right? I I think everyone is just so entrenched in nine to five or eight to four or whatever. Hey, Ronnie, I'm going to have to call it there because we're just out of time. But thanks so much for joining us. Ronnie, a set home managing partner of the set home law group, joining us about those back to work and protections for employers. Well, we have the Fed meeting uh, today, tomorrow, the Fed decision at uh, 2 p.m. Wall Street time tomorrow to get a preview of what we might hear from the Fed. We welcome our uh, favorite Fed guest, Ira Jersey, chief U.S. interest rate strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence. So, Ira, I'm guessing you're not expecting anything major to come out of the Fed meeting, but give us your thoughts. Yeah, thanks, Paul. Uh, It's all going to be nuance, I think. And, uh, you know, the the big thing that we're going to be looking for is – what is the Federal Reserve thinking in terms of forward guidance? Because they, you know, they hinted basically early in the crisis that they might try yield curve control, which is buying bonds at a certain uh, yield in unlimited size to keep the long-term interest rates low. But they kind of backtracked on that uh, over the last six weeks or so. And in doing so, they, they did say that they were looking for some kind of other enhanced forward guidance. So, you know, how that's going to work, how long that guidance is going to be for basically saying that we're going to keep interest rates at zero for, you know, at least three years now, but maybe it's a little longer. Um, you know, that, that's the type of guidance we're going to be looking for in, uh, in both the statement and more importantly, in the press conference that starts at 2.30 tomorrow. Right. So, Ira, the Fed received some pushback, I think, on their plans over the last 
month or so to you know go into the bond market, start buying maybe even corporate bonds, buying even Apple bonds on their list. What actually has the Fed been doing in the open market? Yeah, so they have been buying uh, corporate bonds, but in very small size. I mean, relative okay. to the size of the market, as well as the uh, um, as well as how much is being issued in, in new issuance. But you know, basically, they're doing it just to fulfill a promise that they made when uh, the, the CARES Act was was first passed, and Congress basically gave them the ability to do that with. Uh, some money from the Treasury Department and taxpayer money uh, in the event that they take any losses. Um, but, but they're still buying a lot of uh, Treasury bonds and agency, uh, agency mortgage debt, and uh, that is, is likely to continue, especially given the size of the deficit and, and a little bit of worry that the Fed has, I think, that the, uh, that the bond market might seize up uh, at different times, especially if the uh, um, uh, especially in periods when they're issuing so much debt. So, you know, we're, we're talking about having a, a four and a half trillion dollar deficit for fiscal mm. year uh, 2020, which ends at the end of September. Um, and, and, you know, additional stimulus is only going to push out uh, how big deficits are going to be into 2021. So, so I think that the Fed is worried about market liquidity and they'll continue uh, to buy corporate bonds. And that means that, you know, their balance sheet is just going to keep expanding, at least for the time being. Do you expect tomorrow and his prepared remarks and or in the Q&A for Fed Chairman Powell to opine that more fiscal stimulus is needed? Is, is that, what has what his role been in, in, in his commentary on that front? Yeah, so I think he, he will mention that. I mean, he, he hinted at it in, uh, in the past, actually, in, at the June meeting. He basically said that, you know, there is a, there, it's, he didn't come out and say it directly that there's a limit to mon monetary policy, because I think that, that they're scared that how the markets might react and how the economy, uh, economic actors might react if the Fed says that they don't have much more that they can do. But in reality, the, the, with the exception of increasing sizes, there's not a whole lot more that the Federal Reserve can do. So he will nod and say that, you know, more fiscal stimulus is needed. This is unprecedented times. The economy is still fragile. You've seen an uptick now in, uh, in, in uninsurance claims over the last couple of weeks. So I think that he'll point to some economic indicators to suggest that there should be additional stimulus. And then, of course, a reporter will ask him, what should that stimulus include? And he'll just say, that's not up to me to decide. That's up to Congress. And, um, but, you know, it should be broad and help uh, all the economic actors across the economy. Right. What do you expect, uh, Ira, um, in terms of what else the Fed can do? I mean, I, it seems like they've I mean, as, as you look back on these past five, six months, the Fed was early. Uh, the Fed was active. The Fed was, I think, transparent. The Fed generally gets good remarks, I think, from most market participants. Is it steady as she goes right here? And, and kind of the, the balance point is going to be fiscal stimulus? Yeah, so I think I think for the Fed, it's more you know right sizing the tools that they currently have. So in the event, for example, that there is another um, the significant downturn in the economy and that it becomes more difficult, for example, for credit to flow through, um, you know, changing things like the Main Street program perhaps and and doing some tweaks into who's eligible to that. They've done a little bit of that. Um, certainly helping the municipal bond market and and uh, municipalities fund themselves given uh, the lack of tax revenue is, is something else that I think can be tweaked a little bit here and there, but there's, um, but, but it's probably more about the size that they might need to do in the future as opposed to creating a lot of new programs. Any surprises you're expecting in the Q&A tomorrow? What, what would surprise you? I, I think what would surprise me is, 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 is 
if they did announce some type of yield curve control or extent, really enhanced forward guidance that was beyond the 2022 timeframe that they're currently talking about. That would certainly be a surprise to the market. Um, you know, what would the market reaction be? Well, with 10-year yields at 58 basis points, yeah. um, you know, it maybe goes back to the lows at 54, 50, 50 basis points perhaps. But, um, but I don't see a significant market reaction, even if they were to enhance that guidance tomorrow. Ira, thanks so much. As always, uh, Ira Jersey, Chief U.S. Interest Rate Strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence. We'll be watching the Fed uh, today and tomorrow. Again, uh, statement at 2 p.m. Wall Street time tomorrow. Uh, and as Ira mentioned, the uh, press conference uh, with Fed Chairman Powell, 2.30 p.m. Wall Street time tomorrow. Uh, Bloomberg will be covering that. Clearly, we'll bring that all the important information coming from that meeting, as we always do. Well, we had some uh, numbers out of McDonald's. Uh, really weak same-store sales. Uh, that stock trading off today. We've got Starbucks tomorrow. Good opportunity to get a sense of how restaurants are dealing in this pandemic right here as we enter into the fifth or sixth month here. So the way to really get close to the restaurant business, we're pleased to be able to chat with Michael Halen. He covers restaurants for Bloomberg Intelligence. He's a senior analyst there. Mike, let's start with uh, Mickey D's. Uh, what was your takeaway from the numbers today? Uh, you know, Mickey D's kind of underperformed a little bit uh, early on in the pandemic. Uh, I think part of that was uh, the fact that they've, they've halted their all-day breakfast to kind of help um, improve franchisee mar- margins and, and uh, throughput uh, at the drive-through during lunch and dinner times. Uh, but they've been able to, to increase their same-store sales uh, in July. Uh, they outperformed the QSR competitors of theirs. Uh, in May and June, which we knew were going to be weak uh, anyway. So so it looks like um, when it comes to sales, they're back uh, in, in, in a mode of kind of taking uh, market share again here in the U.S., which, which we've been kind of accustomed to over the last three years. Same source sales came in brutally low. I think it was 23.9% negative. Uh, was – is that – was that more than the street had been looking for, worse than the street had been looking for? Yeah, it was slightly worse. Uh, results were kind of mixed. Uh, it was slightly worse. U.S. was, was uh, you know, only maybe 30 basis points worse than, than what was the, the street was expecting. You know, that, that headline total same-store sales number was, was greatly impacted by uh, international store closures. Um, you know, some markets were shut down completely. You know, France, uh, U.K., uh, Spain, Italy, those were, were four markets that were completely closed for, yeah. for part of the quarter. And uh, McDonald's does the right thing by including store closures in their same-store sales estimates. So yep. some of the restaurant peers we're going to see reporting, the numbers might look a little better, but that's because they leave uh, closed stores out of the comp base. So, so, so I think, you know, all told, you know, what you see out of McDonald's is that you know they're recovering. They're recovering a little faster than many of their peers because of the strong drive-through business. Uh, you know, and, and sales sales are, are getting back to growth. You know, margins, however, are a little bit of a different story. So, top line, you know, I always appreciate the forecast from McDonald's because it truly is a global forecast. What are they seeing in some of the markets going forward? Are they what's their level of optimism or concern? I think there's a lot more optimism uh, here in the U.S., and that's because they have a very strong drive-through business. About two-thirds of their sales come through the drive-through uh, prior to COVID, and now, obviously, those numbers are higher. Delivery uh, has sh- seen some growth, and, and although even though they only have 2,000 
dining rooms open, the fact that they're able to generate positive same-store sales uh, is a good sign. Uh, international, a little bit different. So those four markets that I mentioned in Europe uh, that had been closed down, they do maybe 30% of their sales at the drive through So um, that's going to be a big headwind. China also seems to be, consumers seem to be, uh, continue to be scared uh, of uh, coronavirus and it's affecting their uh, consumption behavior. There's very few drive-throughs in that country. So, so they also pointed out uh, that China, uh, they expect uh, sluggish sales to continue through year-end. Starbucks reports tomorrow. What's uh, your expectation, Mike? Yeah, so Starbucks has a, a you know much bigger issues than McDonald's, and I think it's going to take a lot longer for their sales to recover. So, uh, first of all, on the sales side, they have only. Uh, about 30% of their U.S. stores have a drive-through, so that's uh, problematic. Uh, also, breakfast sales have been hurt, uh, hit the hardest in the QSR industry because of increased telecommuting, less people going to work. Um, so that's obviously going to be very impactful for Starbucks, and they do a, a big business, and there's a lot of people in the stores, and you have consumers that still aren't ready to get back to you know packed cafes. So. Uh, all, for all of those reasons, we expect sales to be down much, much more uh, in the quarter, maybe down about 40% uh, for Starbucks. And then they also have much more margin pressure because they um, own and operate about 50% of their stores, whereas you know McDonald's is about 6%. So they're going to have much higher uh, pressure on the margin side uh, as well as Starbucks. So it's interesting, uh, just kind of looking at your peer group and the peer group for Starbucks. I mean, if you're an indoor dining facility, your stock's just obviously kind of gotten hit pretty hard year to date. But if you're, you know, kind of out of home a little bit, Domino's at Chipotle, that's been the play for restaurants. And is that kind of the foreseeable future, the call, Mike? Yeah, we think that's going to continue. I mean, some of these uh, full-service dining chains are starting to do better because I think, A, there was stimulus checks, right? There was yeah. uh, increased payments in the unemployment. Uh, people definitely had a lot of cabin fever. People were tired of staying home and wanted to get out. Uh, and they're kind of making picking up some of the slack with outdoor dining. Um, yeah. But with a lot of, you know, with this unemployment insurance uncertainty, uh, you know, as we move into the fall and the winter and, and outdoor dining goes away in, in many of the states in the United States, you know, we expect there to be continued pressure on the full service uh, sector. And, and, you know, right now, delivery continues to be the place to be with with yeah. drive throughs a close second. Interesting, interesting times in the restaurant business. Initially, one of the hardest hit sectors still feeling the pain. Michael Halen, senior restaurant analyst for Bloomberg Opinion, giving us uh, his thoughts here. Uh, I can just say for, you know, here in New Jersey, we have the outdoor dining, and that's generally going pretty well. I think a lot of the restaurants I talk to say it helps, but it certainly is not the uh, cure-all. And, of course, that only works when the weather uh, cooperates. So clearly, the restaurant's looking for some help there. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Bonnie Quinn. I'm on Twitter at Bonnie Quinn. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.